we're back to the future, aren't we? I mean, in 2010, I was leader of UKIP and I said, you can't put a cigarette paper between them, whether it was Clegg or Miliband or Cameron on most major substantial policy issues. And I wasn't wrong. Um, and that was what led to a new distinctive insurgency that happened within the country. We then had a few years where Labour and the Conservatives were genuinely different. Different because of Brexit and different because of Corbyn. You know, Corbyn was hardline left. Now that Boris Johnson's adopted Brexit, whether he believes in it, I've no idea, really. But now that Brexit, as he sees it, is done, although I think with the current fish dispute with Northern Ireland, there's still a bit to sort out. But now that Brexit's done, Boris can take the Conservatives back to a social democrat centre. And that indeed is where, is where Starmer is trying to take Labour. We saw that. Um, at their conference, and we're back to where we were in 2010, with no major difference on really anything between the Labour, Conservatives and Liberal Democrats. And the disappointment of this, the real disappointment, if you look at the forward growth figures, you know, we, 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 we've got the Jack and Ori numbers for this year and next year, but look at growth projections going ahead, 1.6%, 1.3% going out to 25-26. That's what needs to be addressed. If we are going to run these huge deficits with the risk of rising interest rates, we have to have growth in the economy. And I was talking to... Hello and welcome to the Fortune and Freedom podcast, where Nigel Farage and Nikolai Hubble give you a unique take on what's really going on in the world of finance, investing and politics. We hope you sit back and enjoy this episode. Hello and welcome to this special edition of Fortune and Freedom. Nigel, I've only just realized that Fortune and Freedom has been going for more than a year because about a year ago, we did a budget response speech from you replying to the budget at the time, which means we should do another one. And so I'd love to hear what you think of Rishi Sunak's budget speech. Well, let's start with presentation, shall we? Very slick, very smooth, um, you know, tells the House of Commons what he thinks it wants to hear, um, gets lauded by much of the press for doing so, uh, and then... Really interesting, 8 p.m. on budget night, he went to the Crown and Two chairman in Westminster. It's a pub I know well. It's very close to Conservative Central Office. There were hundreds there. The pub was full, the street was full, all Tory staffers, MPs, and Rishi, teetotaler, turns up at the Crown and Two chairman to be cheered and mobbed and selfied, which tells you all you need to know. He wants to be the next leader, no question about that. Now let's come to content. Shall we? There was nothing conservative in this budget at all. This was a Gordon Brown budget circa 2008-2009. Increasing taxes, increasing spending, pricing in huge budget deficit financing for years and years to come. Even next year, free of the pandemic, you're looking at a budget deficit of another 100 billion. So We've got up to 2.2 trillion on the national debt and we're just gonna keep going. So if you think about it, the first point to make is this is the most enormous gamble on interest rates. If interest rates stay very low, he might just about get away with it. But if, as you and I have been saying on these podcasts, inflation is gonna be sustained and rising, it's impossible that rates don't go up. Um, and I, I wonder if he has misread the interest rate market over the next three or four years, uh, we're going to be in real trouble uh, in terms of the annual financing you know, of this huge debt that we've built up uh, is going to start to cost eye-watering sums of money. The second point to make 
is the only reason the sums as they are add up is based on an adjustment to growth forecasts. Oh yes, we were expecting growth of 4.5% this year. And even though retail sales are slowing, and we're seeing a bit of caution from people, and that's not surprising with rising household energy bills and, 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 and commodities going through the roof in the way that they are. And yet, miraculously, the supposedly neutral Office for Budget Responsibility tell us, it's okay, guys, it's going to be 6.5% this year. Well, I have to say, I think all the sums are based on a fable. But that's modern politics. No one cares. Just tell people short term what you think they want to hear and let tomorrow look after itself. It was Boris Johnson's style with the withdrawal agreement with Europe, which you and I both knew. Uh, you know, bits of it were okay, bits of it were rotten, but this was this lovely oven ready deal. And this is Rishi with this new paradigm um, of politics. I mean, it, he's not quite endorsing modern monetary theory, but he's not too far away. So yeah, I think it's a very big gamble with the future. It's based on false figures. It does very little for business at all particularly small business, who seem to have been completely ignored uh, by a government that is Oxbridge, elitist and corporate. Let's dig into your favourite topic, though, the issue of, uh, of drinks, of alcohol. And I noticed, well, I tried to understand the way that the taxes were being changed on various different types of beer and cider and high alcohol content and low alcohol content and the size that they're, they're delivered in. And it just, I spent about 10 minutes trying to understand it. And I just realized at some point that it's a perfect example of how the government is making things so ridiculously complex and then fine tuning it slightly here and there. And, and you, you get completely lost in what they're actually doing, which is just making life difficult for everyone. And this seems to be a huge continuation of that with you know, more taxes. There's the inflation tax, high inflation rates, interest rates. It's all just getting more difficult for everyone. It's not helping people. That's what I took from it. Yeah, I mean, the drinks thing was interesting. I mean, there are a couple of good points he did make in the budget. Namely, now we've, now we've got Brexit, we're free to do many things we otherwise wouldn't have been free to do. Uh, and I was very surprised he didn't take 5% VAT of domestic fuel bills. That would have been a really big shout out because under, under the EU, we weren't allowed to remove that. And I think right now, politically, that would have been quite clever. His argument against that was, well, that would also benefit the better off. True, but it would have been a very big signal. His changes to British shipping, I thought, were very positive. You know, we're outside EU rules, and hopefully, with what he's done, we'll see the red ensign on many more merchant vessels, and that would be a very good thing. So that part of the speech showed me he understands the potential of Brexit. He's just not using it to maximum effect. Similarly with the drinks regime, we're much freer now to set some of these juices. But the threepence off a pint, 3p off a pint of beer, hooray! We're all, isn't it marvellous? Let's get down the boozer. Comes in in the spring of 2023. <laughs> and by the looks of it, will only apply to beers at less than 4%, uh, and, and it'll be tuppence on those between 4 and 5. Um, a little bit off Prosecco and Champagne, off some ciders, but increases on whiskies, increases, of course, on the gin boom that's going on. The net effect is zero. And as I say, even the threepence of a pint doesn't come in for a couple of years. Funny, isn't it? Tax raises go on immediately. Cuts are in the future. Worth mentioning, Nick, and nobody else has mentioned this, and they dare not, of course, it's all too difficult. Swinging increases in tobacco, especially on hand-rolling tobacco. So a packet of cigarettes now is about 14 quid. 
uh, because it's so expensive, a lot of smokers now buy loose tobacco and roll their own. Swingy increases on hand rolling tobacco, which means a market, well over half of which is already illegal black market tobacco, that black market will only get bigger. We're back to Adam Smith. You know, if you price things wrong, in those days it was brandy that people smuggled, and today it's loose tobacco. So, I, I, you know, none of that really makes sense to me at all. Um, quite frankly, if, I mean, okay, it's not Corbyn, but if Keir Starmer was in office, I don't think Labour would have presented a budget any different to the one that we saw last week. Is that a new phenomenon or is that you know, something that's, I mean, I'm, I've heard that statement that, you know, it could be a Labour budget, it might as well be Labour, or it might as well yeah, be the Conservatives uh, when, when Labour, it, it just seems to be a, an old, you know, a, a continuous story that the, the politicians adopt the other parties, or you know this yeah. better than anyone, adopt the other parties' policies to try and, you know, pull out the voter. We're back to the future, aren't we? I mean, in 2010, I was leader of UKIP and I said, you can't put a cigarette paper between them whether it was Clegg or Miliband or Cameron on most major substantial policy issues. And I wasn't wrong. Um, and that was what led to a new distinctive insurgency that happened within the country. We then had a few years where Labour and the Conservatives were genuinely different. Different because of Brexit and different because of Corbyn. You know, Corbyn was hardline left. Now that Boris Johnson's adopted Brexit, whether he believes in it, I've no idea really. But now that Brexit, as he sees it, is done, although I think with the current fish dispute with Northern Ireland, there's still a bit to sort out. But now that Brexit's done, Boris can take the Conservatives back to a Social Democrat centre. And that indeed is where, is where Starmer is trying to take Labour. We saw that um, at their conference. And we're back to where we were in 2010, with no major difference on really anything between the Labour, Conservatives and Liberal Democrats and the disappointment of this, the real disappointment. If you look at the forward growth figures, you know, we, we, we've got the Jack and Ori numbers for this year and next year. But look at growth projections going ahead, 1.6%, 1.3% going out to 25-26. That's what needs to be addressed. If we are going to run these huge deficits with the risk of rising interest rates, we have to have growth in the economy. And I was talking to Gerard Lyons last week, a man who I very much hoped would have become the governor of the Bank of England, um, as opposed to the um, out to lunch governor that we have now. Um, and Gerard made the point, you know, it's all well and good for Sunak to speak about the opportunities of Brexit. Let's start bringing supply side reform. Let's start making it easier for the five to six million people out there running their own businesses, because that's where real growth in the UK economy comes. Now, I'm not gonna give up completely on Sunak yet. He's still got time, but goodness me, you know, wake up and smell the coffee. We've got an amazing opportunity here. And if, and if we as Brexit Britain, if our ambitions in three to five years time have a growth hovering around one and a half percent, we ain't getting it right. Let's just quickly mention Europe because they're more likely to run into some sort of budgetary difficulty before the UK does. And so if you're afraid of this budget crisis, you know, that, I love that quote about how did you go bankrupt very slowly and then very quickly. And you know, that's how these <laughs> things tend to play out. And so I think it's Europe that's it's more at risk of uh, experiencing that very quickly part of the, the bankruptcy story. Are you more worried about what's going on over the, on the other side of the pond, especially for, for investors? Yes, I am. I mean, look, you know, I think that, uh, I think, I mean, let's deal with Europe first. I think that um, the EU itself is in a real mess. I mean, the French are willfully 
trying to break the withdrawal agreement, which is a treaty between us and the EU, and the EU say nothing and do nothing. The Poles upset them and are now being fined a million euros a day. So there's some real tensions there and some real questions, I think, about the authority um, that uh, the primary school teacher, Ursula von der Leyen, I don't wish to be rude to primary school teachers, but how on earth she's in charge of 400 million people is beyond me. Some real questions about the authority of the commission and that's on a political level. We know when there's an economic crisis, there's no confidence at all. We saw that in 2008, when Mr. Barroso, the former uh, Maoist from Portugal who was running the show, had no authority and kind of Mrs. Merkel, in a sense, took charge. So political problems, economic problems mounting. Uh, yeah, I don't think the picture... Look, I mean, look, we are relatively better off than the European Union. That I have no doubt whatsoever. All I'm arguing in this podcast is we should be taking more advantage. Looking across the other side of the Atlantic, things are very interesting. Uh, we've got on Tuesday, a very, very big election, surprisingly big election in Virginia. Now, Blue Virginia, it's always Democrat. There's no argument about that. And yet, here's a contest for the governorship. It looks, well, polls are all over the shop, but it looks pretty neck and neck. But more interestingly, some polling over the weekend, uh, and, and this by NBC, you know, not Fox News or Newsmax, this by NBC, asking people which party they trusted in terms of their competence on a variety of issues, from economics, through borders, through everything else. And suddenly you see the Republicans with, with, with leads averaging 20% across all of the major issues of American national life. Um, Biden is floundering. I mean, let's face it, he barely knows what day of the week it is. Biden's floundering. His deputy, Kamala Harris, who will become president, because he isn't going to last the course. I mean, I mean, the last town hall meeting he did with CNN, he could barely string a sentence together. Uh, and my feeling is after the midterms, which happen next November, he'll be gone. So Harris then, under the Constitution, becomes president. She's wildly unpopular. So very interesting in, 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 in America that we have an administration that's only been sworn into office for nine months, losing credibility across the board and on every, and, and on every front. And now he can't even get his spending packages through Capitol Hill. But kind of, it's almost kind of bullish for the American economy. Because if government's not interfering, you know, people, people could just get on and do what they do. But so I, I'm, I'm expecting over the course of 22 to see a really big, major bounce back in Republican fortunes. I'm certain that Biden will lose the Senate. I'm like almost 100% on that. And I'm, I'm, I'm nearly as certain he'll lose the lower house as well. So you're gonna have America for the next couple of years sort of stuck in limbo, but it does actually stop Biden doing damaging things to the US economy. So I, I still kind of, I still kind of in a way think that American entrepreneurship just keeps on forging ahead um, in the most extraordinary way. I think that's a, a lovely positive thing to, to end on. But I do want to mention that because there's something that's irritating me, which is the fact that this this um, budget uh, deficit ceiling, this, this debt ceiling that the big debate about is in the US. Nobody ever ponders, why is there a debt ceiling? <laughs> why did we put that in place? And I want to leave readers with that, with that thought and that question. Nigel, thanks very much for joining us. And thanks for your budget response. 